open God's holy word to the 27th Psalm. The 27th Psalm of David. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high up on a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to Yahweh. Hear, O Yahweh, when I cry aloud. And be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Yahweh, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But Yahweh will take me in. Teach me your way. O Yahweh, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Wait for Yahweh. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. This This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, strengthen our faith. May we take confidence in you this morning. May that confidence be our earnest desire and hope that we long for our full salvation and deliverance. All in You. Send Your Spirit now and teach us these things so we may walk in faithfulness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The majority of the Psalter is made up of psalms of lament. It's not uncommon for many of these to end with an element of confidence. Indeed, we often desire that they end that way. There are also what we might call confidence psalms. And it's not unusual for them to contain elements of lament. So the the lament, we hope for it to end in confidence, and they often do. 
And the confidence psalms sometimes begin with lament and then move on to be dominated by an expression of confidence and faith. It makes sense to us that a lament could begin with confidence, but for a confidence psalm to move into lament, that might startle us, shake us. And that's exactly what we have in this psalm. And it's so bothered some scholars that they think two psalms somehow got conflated through editorial missteps, mishaps along the way. That speaks not so much of big minds as it does of little faith. But I don't think many of us are so different. We just haven't taken time to think these through, things through. And, and functionally, though, we're not that different if I told you that there was a poem that moved from this expression of strong confidence into lament, would you say that the author's faith waxed stronger or waned weaker? Would you say that the psalm, the poem, progressed or regressed. Sometimes a poet can take us on an emotional journey, or a journey of his heart. Or sometimes he might capture the warring and varied emotions that can exist at the very same time in a single person. And there are psalms that I think do both of these things, but here I think David is steady, and he's solid. And yet we go from confidence to lament to then a final expression of faith again. I don't see anything in this psalm to suggest that David is either swinging between extremes or conflicted in himself at the same moment. See, confidence and lament don't need to be these kind of things that we swing between. They can exist in the same soul at the same time and be at peace in the same space. As we often see lament as a proper avenue towards confidence, I believe confidence can also, without Weakening the element of faith involved therein be expressed as lament. As confidence can be and often is cocky, arrogant, and therefore sinful, so lament can be, should be, full of faith and therefore righteous. Lament will be a symptom of our confidence this side of kingdom come if our, if our confidence is indeed righteous. If we have confidence, it will be expressed as longing. David begins with who God is and the consequences thereof in verse 1. If our confidence is to be of the variety that is righteous and not wicked, it must begin here, and it must be personal. 
It's not enough for David that Yahweh is light and salvation and a stronghold. He's confident not simply because of who Yahweh is, but because he is, as he says it, my light, my salvation, the stronghold of my life. These are not things to presume upon. Have you ever considered that if you claim God as a stronghold, you might be viewing the walls from an undesirable side? The walls that you claim as your protection, you might be standing on the wrong side of them. How do you know if you can add this all-important possessive pronoun to salvation, light, stronghold? How do you know that you're viewing the walls from the side which they provide protection rather than an advantage point of attack upon you? David says that Yahweh is my light. And my salvation. This is the covenant name of God that he gave to his people. It's, it's not greatly translated in our English versions with the all caps Lord. This is the covenant name of God. If you want to know Yahweh as salvation, as light, as a stronghold, you have to know him In His covenant mercy and grace, which means you have to know Him in Christ. Whose name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. If you want to know Yahweh's salvation, you have to know Him covenantally in Christ. The only other alternative is to know Him covenantally in Adam as a sinner. And then you're standing on the wrong side of the walls. And these three terms, light, salvation, stronghold, they're all largely synonymous, each one adding nuance to the other. Light illuminates whenever there is darkness. Salvation delivers when oppressed. Stronghold protects when attacked. And this helps us think more fully, all these synonyms here. Often whenever we think of salvation... We think, as it were, of the first course only, only of the first course, of a rich and lavish and extended feast. We think only of perhaps regeneration or justification whenever biblically so often salvation is meant to express sanctification and glorification and the full range of the many blessings that come to us in Christ. In this, David is not simply saying, I once was lost and now I'm found. I once was in darkness and now I'm in the light. The salvation that David is trusting in here is a present and future salvation. That he's confident of because of the past covenant love of God expressed to his people. And David's confidence, you see, is is rooted in who God is, and then what He's done, who He's revealed Himself to be. And this is why His confidence is not unfounded. It's not foolish. It's not 
without reason or basis that he says, because this is who Yahweh is. I will not fear. I will not be afraid. But he states them as a question this first time. Do you see? Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? It's almost as if he's saying, here's the truth. And this should be. Whether or not it is, this should be where I land. But nonetheless, I think it's clear in this psalm, these truths are having their desired effect upon David, as seen in verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. This is what wholesome doctrine, rightly digested, does. It strengthens the spine. It steadies the heart. Weak doctrine makes for weak Christians. William Plummer comments, One of the best ways to dispel doubts and fears is to summon to our aid the very strongest doctrines and highest truths of religion. Weak doctrines will not be a match for powerful temptations. Why is it that David doesn't fear? Because the one who is his stronghold is Yahweh. And in that, God not only communicated the covenant nature of his relationship to his people, he communed something of the God they were in covenant with. It's built upon that phrase that he spoke to Moses, I am who I am. That is to say, he has aseity. He has of himselfness. He has self-existence. He is eternal. He's immutable. And also along with that, as he's revealing what that name means, we have the exodus and the mighty acts of God revealing himself as Lord, as sovereign. If your theology is built for curbside appeal, if it's built to impress the neighbors according to the passions and desires of their flesh, it won't mean much when you're in the midst of war. And we are. You want a theology you can take refuge in. You want a God built like a stronghold. You want the true and living God who is omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And those things being so, this is why David does not fear. And why the assault of his enemies is futile. Verse Two, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. When God is your stronghold, any arrows launched against you strike Him. And this is your confidence and their folly. God's children can expect discipline and protection from their Heavenly Father. And what this means is, You can find, as a sinner, you can find shelter in Yahweh, but you can't find shelter there for your sins. And yet, all of this is for your good. This is the best place for you to be. But, know this, it's often the enemies on the other side that God uses to drive you towards taking shelter in Yahweh. When you bring an idol into the temple, it's no longer safe for you insofar as what, what you're hoping to do. 
If you're hoping to use this shelter as a shelter for your sins, it's no longer a safe place for you in that regard. But it is the place where you... That you uh, God's, if you're in Christ, then you're in the shelter. And what this means is not that you're going to be protected from every volley, but they're going to work for your good. Um, and that might mean crucifying the flesh. It might mean that some arrows get through to drive you towards the shelter away from the idol. Whenever Yahweh, though, is true and purely indeed your shelter, you need not worry that an, of any, any arrow launched at that point will splinter and the stone will remain unscathed. In that sense, they cannot strike you. They cannot... They might strike you inside the shelter, um, but they cannot strike you in such a way that you are void of all shelter altogether to where the enemies have at you. They may be able to consume your flesh, but they cannot consume your soul. You can sing, if God is your fortress, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. And David's love for this shelter, notice, is not utilitarian. He doesn't just love it because it protects him. He doesn't sing simply because it keeps the enemies out. His chief joy is the throne at the middle of the castle, verse 4. Though uh, one thing I have asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of, of my life to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. David doesn't flee to the altar like a Joab. He doesn't flee there simply because he's seeking for sanctuary for himself to preserve his own self-centered life. Yahweh is his refuge and salvation, but he's also his desire and his love. David doesn't flee to the house of Yahweh and hope that one day the enemy will give up, abandon, and he can get back out to his life out there. The one thing he seeks, the one thing he desires is to dwell in the house of Yahweh, to gaze upon his beauty. You notice he's connecting the stronghold with now the house of Yahweh. The temple, at this point, the tabernacle. But whenever he says the temple, that word can also be translated palace. That's the idea. This is the dwelling place of God. That's where he finds his sanctuary, his refuge. The greatest joy of taking refuge in God is the God in whom we take refuge. The greatest blessing of this fortress is not what we are protected from, but what we are protected for. Being protected from enemies is a blessing. Being protected for God is blessedness. Beauty is often thought to be subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder, they say. But here you see that beauty has an immutable, perfect standard. 
all other expressions of beauty flow from this source. If they're true. Jonathan Edwards echoed this whenever he said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. This is not meant to be taken that one day all of our life will be lived as it were in a temple. But rather that all of our living, both now and hereafter, is meant to be as it were a temple. Beholding and enjoying our God. Listen to Edwards again. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God Himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and their treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and, the ever, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and to which they rise at the end of the world. The Lord God is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things. They will enjoy the angels and they will enjoy one another, but that which they shall enjoy in the angels or each other or in anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what shall be seen of God in them. One thing I've asked of Yahweh, David, please. This one thing I seek after. And even in this, you, you begin to sense it, but it becomes more clear by verse 5. We mustn't say that David's desire here is disinterested either. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. The glory and beauty that David is going to sing of and worship is that which is displayed and made manifest in His salvation. God is glorious and worthy of praise, but we could not and we would not sing of His glory and beauty were it not for His salvation. David's worship is a result of his salvation, not simply as an expression of gratitude, but because that very salvation is what makes manifest the justice and the mercy of which he sings. I could say it this way. We glorify and we worship, we desire this 
not simply because of our salvation, in the sense that they enable us to. They open our eyes. They give us the capacity to do so. We know God not only because of His salvation, we know Him through His salvation. They make Him manifest. And therefore, we sing. Whenever we gaze at the beauty of Yahweh, we should not do so as some third-party, disinterested art critic, as though God somehow needed us to give Him a rating. When we behold the beauty of Yahweh, we should do so as a rescued bride enthralled with the One who's redeemed us. So don't try to act disinterested, as though you're somehow doing God a favor by giving Him your worship. And from such expressions of confidence and praise, now at this point, the psalmist turns to lament in verse 7. Hear, O Yahweh, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Is it not clear though, that this lament is identical to the one thing that David asked? One thing I've asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh. Verse 7, Hear, O Yahweh, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. Your face, Yahweh, do I seek. David's great delight is Yahweh, his face turned to him, and thus his greatest fear Is Yahweh turning His face away? For Yahweh's face to be turned to you means not only that you may behold Him, it means that He's gracious in His disposition towards you so that you may behold Him. The priests were instructed to bless the people in this way. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace, number six. You see, there are several requests in this lament. First, David asks God to be gracious to him. Answer him, verse seven. Again, this is identical to the asking of verse four. And further, do you not see that this is David taking refuge in Yahweh. This is not in contrast to where we began in the psalm. This is the same thing. It's identical with where we began in the psalm. His crying out is his taking refuge in the stronghold that he has confidence in. And second, David asks that Yahweh not hide his face from him, verse 9. This is parallel to the request to not be turned away, not to be cast off, not to be forsaken. And he doesn't do this because of fear and just sheer terror. He does this because of his confidence. Verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. I take this to be metaphorical. Those closest to me, those whom I should be able to depend upon most, 
They've forsaken me, but Yahweh will take me in. His request is rooted in confidence. And third, he asks that he be taught and led, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Yahweh, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. David's concern is not to be led on this magical path of blessing where everything is ease and comfort, no pain. That's the way many think of the will of God, walking in His ways. David's intent is made more clear by the 25th Psalm whenever he says, Good and upright is Yahweh, therefore He instructs sinners in, his, in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. David's prayer is not here to know the secret will of God. Who should I marry? What job should I take so that everything is just prosperous and well for me? His concern is not the secret will of God. His concern is the revealed will of God. Lead me in your ways. Lead me into righteousness. Lead me into truth. Lead me into living in obedience to you. That's his concern. And so do you see this? Whenever the saints live righteously, they do so in dependence on God. David knows the commands of God. There should be a desire on our part. Yes, teach me, show me how I should walk, how I should live unto you. And there are those places where we have the principles of the word, but it calls for wisdom. But I think more than that, David recognizes this. I need more than just information in my head. I need the God who in saving me wrote His law upon my heart. I need to be taught in the depth of my soul to walk in His ways. I need the Spirit of God to lead me on the paths of righteousness every moment in dependence and reliance on Him and not on the flesh. David asks this, verse 11, because of his enemies. I think the idea is that he does not want the enemies of God to distract him from walking in obedience unto his God. The fourth David asks not to be given up to the will of his adversaries. Verse 12. What is their will? Well, they're acting as false witnesses in order to justify the violence that they want to do to him. You see the contrast. David desiring to walk in the ways of God and the false wickedness of the enemies of God. And out of this lament then comes this statement of faith. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. You see the harmony of the psalm again? This is the same looking that he's asking and desiring in verse 4. This is the seeking after Yahweh's face. Verse 8. To look upon God's goodness is to look upon His beauty. True goodness, true beauty, and truth, goodness, beauty, and truth are all wed together. 
they begin to get perverted and distorted whenever you remove one element. Goodness, beauty, and truth are wed and they meet their apex in God. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Land of the living, I think David is saying, he's not expecting to die because of the threats of these enemies. Why can David say that? Well, because of the promises of God concerning his kingdom. I don't think David has any disillusions that he's going to one day die. But he knows this. He's confident of this. Because of God's promises, they won't kill him. But then what can this psalm hold out for us? That seems really specific to David. Consider this. Though David was not cut off from the land of the living, David's greater son, the Christ, was. Isaiah tells us by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. Why is it that David could have any confidence in any kind of even temporal sense that he would not be cut off from the land of the living? Because ultimately there would be one who would be for his people. And he was not cut off forever. He's saying more truly and clearly than David, the 16th Psalm. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. There will be a new earth, the land of the living, those born again unto eternal life, where the final enemy is forever under the pierced but incorrupt feet of the risen Christ. And with these promises in hand, David then proceeds to preach to himself. Verse 14, wait for Yahweh. Be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for Yahweh. This is a great deal of what faith means. Patient trust, taking courage, being strong. Do you recall the words of Moses to Joshua on the eve of the conquest of Canaan? Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land. You shall go with this people into the land that Yahweh has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is Yahweh who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Saints, likewise, waiting patiently upon Yahweh means acting in obedience, assured of His promises. Such as this, Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So waiting patiently means going forward, knowing that will happen, and knowing that the gospel is the means through which it will happen, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. 
So be strong, be courageous, go forward, trusting that every people, every tribe, every nation, His elect from them will be gathered in. The victory is Yahweh's. Wait, be strong, take courage. The worst that they can do to you is kill the body. And when they do, you will wake to behold His glorious face. And then, He's promised you a better body anyway. In the Psalms, we often see lament giving way to confidence. But have you ever considered that your confidence can be expressed as a lament? Some of the very last words of the Scriptures, the last words of the last book of the Bible, are a lament. Come. Lord Jesus. And that lament is born out of what should be, when it's rightly understood, one of the most bolstering, confidence-giving books of the Scriptures. Where we see that one day, oh, it's most assuredly so, When sun and moon are no more. That the glory of the Lord will illuminate all. Such that when we behold anything. We're gazing upon the beauty of our Redeemer. Lament expresses our longings. Longings that we are confident are ours in Christ. Or consider this. In Romans 7, we see Paul lamenting remaining sin. And then it quickly gives way to confidence. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And this lament gets carried. And and the confidence and joy gets carried on into chapter 8. So that Paul writes. I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Are not worthy. Are not worth. Comparing. With the glory. That is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of god For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Read in that, there's a kind of confidence we have because we've already received this kind of massive down payment 
on eternal glory. You have the Spirit of God. And yet, though we have that confidence, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Be strong. Wait. Be courageous. Caught those elements. Now, hear the, the strength that comes with this kind of lament and confidence. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you not hear the first part of Psalm 27 resonating here? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Do you hear the covenant love of God? In Christ. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that glorious passage, overflowing with faith and confidence, perhaps as nowhere else in Scripture, there's a lament right in the midst of it. Yes, lament often does express a kind of weak faith. And it's the avenue to that faith coming into bloom. But also, confidence and strong faith can be and will be expressed as longing and lament. Lament should be charged with confidence. And our faith and confidence are not necessarily tainted if they contain an expression of lament and longing. If your confidence is rightly in God, you will long for that God. And you can long with assurance and faith. If you take refuge in God, in Christ, saints be assured of this. God you will have. If you are within the walls, truly within the walls, trusting in Christ, you come before the throne and you will see Him. If by faith you find shelter in God and Christ, then even your eyeballs will behold the risen Christ in glory 
when all is made new. Praise be to our God. And sinner, we would plead with you. You will know His strength. You will know the power of this fortress. But you stand on the wrong side of the walls if you do not stand in Christ. He was cut off from the land of the living for sinners. And the only way you have any protection from Him is in Him. Flee to Him with the empty hands of repentance, turning from your sins and idols, and bow and kiss the Son. Let's pray. Father, You are our rock. You are our salvation. We shall not be shaken. And because this is so, we pour out our hearts before You. And by grace, our heart's deepest desire and longing, whenever we are sober, is for You. And because that's so, Father, we have strength and courage and we, we will wait. We, we preach that now to ourselves in light of these truths. But even so, come Lord Jesus. In His name we ask this. Amen.